And that's one of the reasons I actually created the Twitter account as well. I mean, to a certain degree, I think if you're smart, you can almost have the Twitter account basically fund the shortfall until the profits really start coming in from the real estate portfolio. Yep. And real estate, it's not as almost everyone is listening to, it's not like stocks, right? It's not like you pick a winner and the next day it goes up 100%. Right. If you pick a winner and you don't get your money until five years from now. So that's, that's what I'm talking about with the difficult part for the numbers to work. It's really that five-year gap between when you start and when the profits roll on. Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I'm really pumped to have a friend of mine that I actually don't know his name. He has an anonymous account on Twitter, The Real Estate God. Um, But we've gotten to know each other over the last couple of years and have chatted quite a bit. And he is uh, one of the smartest people I've met in the real estate private equity space. He's smart because he drills what seem like complex concepts into very simple ways to create uh, exceptional wealth through owning real estate and the different ways to do it. He is an office investor based out of San Francisco, but he also has experience investing in hotels and retail. And he just released an online course that is doing extremely well, that is 100 plus pages that breaks down how to make money and basically turn yourself into a one-man real estate private equity company. It's called The System, and you can check it out in the show notes. So thank you for continuing to join me. This is an incredible episode, and I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on here. Yep. I appreciate you being with me today. Can we just start uh, with a little bit kind of about kind of the background uh, that you had kind of leading up to where you are today? Sure. Uh, by the way, I have a, a really quick background. I'm a junior partner in a real estate private equity firm. Uh, we look at deals probably in the around 220 million to 200 million price range, really in the value add segment of the market. I also acquired deal deals by myself, um, mostly multifamily. And I run a Twitter account, uh, The Real Estate God. How did you kind of get into your online personality as a real estate god? Did that come out of necessity or were you looking, you know, to to meet more people? Or like, how did that whole kind of persona come come about? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Really, I actually hate social media. I don't have any personal social media at all. I just recognize that it's an incredible tool. And I think it's it's dumb to not build an online presence uh, in this day and age. So it's almost... I enjoy doing it a lot, but I think it's something you have to do. You're getting free traffic and you can use that traffic for whatever you want, whether it's raising money for deals. Now you have to be careful with SEC regulations and everything like that, but raising money for deals, selling a course like I do, anything really. It's just it's just a great platform to really branch out, meet people, make connections and, and everything. And you've been pretty vocal about, um, I guess, at the current private equity firm that you're working at. I guess, a mentor or mentors that really kind of changed your life and how you thought about things. So can you start by just describing kind of this, the setup at, at the current uh, private equity firm you're at, what y'all are looking at, investing in, um, and then would love to ask some questions just about like what made those people and those mentors uh, kind of so valuable to you? Mainly what I invest in, my mentor actually runs a, a separate shop. Um, he's a little bit siloed, but mainly what I invest in is, is office, a lot of San Francisco office. And mainly in that twenty million to two hundred million dollar range, 
they also end up investing in retail just as a virtue but being below the office building and hotels as well. And probably going to start branching out into industrial, but it's really not a core competency of mine. And is it all San Francisco-based, or you, do you all invest across the country? Uh, it's across the country. It's not, not all San Francisco, but definitely mainly focused there. Yep. And then as far as office goes, is it, a, is it class B, class A, flex, kind of everything in between, or is there a certain niche? I wouldn't consider it. Uh, it, it it's creative office. And I would say it's as nice as creative office gets, but I wouldn't consider it true class A because I, I think that's a different standard. But it, it's very nice creative office. And and are y'all deve- are y'all um, the ones buying these buildings and kind of redeveloping them into that creative office, or you're just identifying buildings that already have it kind of built into the building? It's it's usually a mix of both. I would say a lot of the buildings are halfway creative and half not. Um, sometimes they're zero creative but it's, it's very rare we buy a building that's fully built out creative because then there's really not much to do so there's typically at least some value add component just to give juice to the return got it how do y'all source uh deals through broker networks or um how do y'all find stuff yeah it's mainly all broker networks um and i think that's really kind of what you have to do once you start getting to the, the bigger levels of deals we do have jv partners who will come to us with deals but if you're any good in the market, um, you should be seeing all those deals anyway almost. You'll see some that maybe it's a, a recap or something like that where a JV partner actually makes sense. But most of the time, you should be seeing almost all the deals anyway just through brokers. Yeah. And I, and I want to get into structuring and all of, of that good stuff. But you know, you kind of mentioned office, retail, and hotel, which have been kind of hot buttons throughout the pandemic. Can we maybe talk a little bit about each asset class and kind of what 2020, kind of what you your thoughts on how 2020 played out and then kind of how you're looking forward in each in each of those asset classes? Sure. Um, start with office. So I get, yeah, start with office. Office, obviously, there's a ton of press, a lot, and just kind of headwinds against, I guess, with the whole work from home movement. I, I know how you feel about it. I think you're you're pretty bullish on office. I'm bullish as not bullish, but I, I think it's there to stay. I don't think everyone's just going to be a decentralized work from home workforce forever. What I will say is, I think it's probably going to switch to maybe it's three days in the office, two at home, or some type of schedule like that. Because I do, I do think people like working from home, and it's it's better for I think a lot of reasons, just in terms of freedom, that a lot of people in the, let's say, age 30 and below generation really value. So I do think work from home is here to stay, but I do think office is here to stay for, to a certain degree as well. I think, though, a lot of the traditional office um, cities may change a bit, just because if you truly can kind of work from home, I think living in a lot of these high-cost areas, like, say, like in New York or San Francisco, or even LA, it just becomes a bit harder to justify when you could just open an office in, I don't want to say Miami just to be cliche, yeah. but somewhere like that, where you can kind of just pop open an office and your tax rate's 10% lower and you're, you're really producing the same exact product. So I think there's going to be a little bit of reshuffling there. I do think as of right now, it's a tough asset class just to get a hold on. I think the risk reward isn't fully there where it's, it's very difficult to know where the trends are going to swing. And as of right now, I mean, we'll be underwriting deals to let's say low twenties IRR. And I just don't think that justifies the risk yep. at the present moment. I think you really need to see where the dust settles 
and kind of see where the when the government lockdowns end and how how kind of all that really snowballs to to really figure out what's going to happen with that asset class. I mean, my official position right now is I wouldn't invest in it at the present moment, but three months from now I I could invest in it. I just think right now it doesn't make sense. In terms of hotels, I've been pretty public about this on my Twitter page. I hate hotels. <laughs> I, I think they're a, I think they're a horrible asset class. They're just so difficult to manage. You don't get the risk reward at all. You'll get a few, say above multi, right? You're getting 200, 300 basis points. And it's just insane. It's a running entire business. And for just so many reasons, it just, I, I don't think it makes sense. So I never really liked it beforehand. Right now, I think it's even worse. And I think almost every hotel is cash flow negative or even NOI negative, uh, never mind debt service. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of headwind space in that industry. What I will say is I think people are willing to travel. So I think if you can get like a good concept, like almost like an Airbnb type concept with a hotel, I think those will succeed. I think people want to travel. People, especially once, it sounds crazy. I think once the government gives everyone okay, everyone's going to be traveling like crazy. I'm not totally against it. I just don't really like the asset class overall. It's really an operating business. It, it's an operating business. It's people who buy for the real estate are in for a world of hurt. And unfortunately, a lot of people do buy for the real estate. Yep. And then retail, what kind of retail have y'all been doing? So retail is interesting. Retail, I think, is going to switch more towards kind of like revenue share models. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a bit different if you're talking about like really high, high quality retail. That probably won't change. But a lot of the lower end retail, at least from what I'm seeing in San Francisco, most operators just can't get locked into a long-term lease where they have a, a big obligation right now. So they're just asking for revenue share agreements, which most landlords are happy to do because it's either a revenue share or an empty storefront. Yep. So I think to some degree that that's kind of going to be how it's going to work in the future. Just because a lot of these places, they just don't have, they don't want to get locked into a lease. They don't want those massive obligations. It's really not fair to them. Um, and as long as they're producing revenue, it, it kind of makes sense. We'll see what happens once the lockdowns end, because that's probably affected retail harder than any other industry. And I do think there's probably going to be the most opportunities in the retail sector out of any sector, just because, I mean, the amount of vacant storefronts is, is, is incredible. Whoever, whoever figures out how to fully reposition retail is a, a billionaire, I think. Oh, yeah. Now, that, that's going to be the next huge idea. Are y'all doing neighborhood retail or kind of niche retail or big box or everything? I would say it's it's definitely not big box. Um, it's really, let's say, between five and, I don't know, 30,000 square foot floor plates in the bottom of our office buildings. Yeah. That's kind of what we're repositioning. Usually, it's it's broken up. So it's not like it's an entire 30,000 square foot plate. I mean, maybe you have one 5,000 square foot tenant, one 10,000 square foot tenant. And it's just kind of, right now, you're just working with the tenants to kind of make sure they stay there, make sure they pay. Some will blow out, obviously. Yeah, but yeah, that, that that's kind of the range we're working in. You're the first person I've had on the podcast that's in San Francisco, but in real estate. Everybody else has been in like the tech business. Can you just shed some light on kind of what's going on up there? Um, like, obviously, you've invested heavily in office up there, and just kind of how you're seeing uh, the market and. You know, you hear all these people, and this was one of those Twitter questions, you know, moving to Miami or moving out. Like, what is your perception on just San Francisco, even irrelevant of the asset class? Like, what are you experiencing right now? Yeah, so uh, this is an interesting one, too. If you're looking at it from, I'll start out with an office perspective and why I think San Francisco office has been a great investment over 
the past 10 years, let's say, it's mainly because the government just restricts supply to an insane degree. Yeah. And that's why it's such a good office market is because max you can build in the given year is a few percentage points of supply, right? And that'll get, and typically in the past, at least, it gets swallowed up free development. So you'll be like, this development will be three years in the future and Facebook will just swallow up 2 million square feet. And now zero other tenants in the market can even swallow up square feet unless they go to a building that's already occupied, right? And that kind of is what drives or what had driven the price and why even now, I don't want to say I'm totally against San Francisco office just because the supply is so restricted. And yep. it's really hard to get past that um, just on a pricing standpoint. So that, that's why it's, it's great from an office perspective. From an actual city perspective, and I used to live in New York, so that, that's kind of what I compare it to. San Francisco has horrible public transportation. I think it has horrible weather. It's, it's fine once you go on the peninsula, but the actual weather in San Francisco isn't good. Really bad nightlife. Very expensive. Trying to think what else. But basically, my, my thesis on San Francisco is the city itself isn't... There's really nothing special about it. I, I, I don't like it at all. I think overall, New York, LA, any other tier one city blows it out of the water in terms of amenities and everything else. I don't even think it's close, really. And I think the only reason people ever went to San Francisco is for the gold rush of tech jobs. Yep. And that's why it's great, right? The people never went there and they were like, oh, I love San Francisco. They were like, oh, I love going to Tahoe. Or I love uh, working at Facebook. Sure, because you're making a ton of money at Facebook and Tahoe's great. You don't actually like the city of San Francisco. It's yep. different from somewhere like New York where like everyone loves New York. They love the city of New York. They don't love going to Hoboken. They love New York. Yep. So I think it's a, it's a very, very big difference. And I think LA is the same thing where people actually love the city of LA. I don't think anyone loves the city of San Francisco. And you see that where all the rich people in San Francisco live in the outlying counties. Like no one lives, none of the loaded people live in actual downtown San Francisco. Right? Everyone lives in Marin County, um, wherever it is, right? They live all over the place. Yep. Um, so they all try and get out of San Francisco once you're rich, which is the exact opposite of what you do in New York. Everyone who's rich lives in Manhattan. In New York, I've always thought that people just go to San Francisco as a gold rush. And that's kind of my main concern with the city now is you go for the tech jobs. If the tech jobs do disappear with work from home or go other places, that's when the city really, really falls into trouble. Yep. Are you worried about the tech jobs leaving or you think that's such a embedded uh, network there that it'll, it'll always, it'll always be there? No, I'm definitely worried about that. Um, I wouldn't say they're hundred percent all leaving and I'm not going to discount the network, but realistically, I mean, you could build a good network on Twitter alone. Right? Like you don't need to be in person anymore, especially for tech. Yep. So I do think to a certain degree, a lot of that is a bit overblown. And it, it does concern me, especially as a San Francisco office investor. Just, I think that's the main headwind that actually disturbs me at all. Uh, because I do think the, the restricted supply is probably going to stay given the governance of San Francisco. Yep. And I think that's one of the most important things there. But in terms of the gold rush, if the gold rush ends up leaving, then I, there's a big problem. When you say government's restricting, I, I know that, um, you know, just from afar, you hear that it's pretty radical out there. Are, are they restrictive because they're radical or are there some type of sets of laws there that make San Francisco different than the rest of the country? So there's a few different laws, right? One is Prop M, which was kind of like the initial office restrictory, restrictory law, I guess. Um, and that kind of restricts you to a few million square feet of office every year. Uh-huh. Uh, in terms of development. 
there's like a small cap allocation that it gets kind of really technical, but that that's kind of the main gist of it. Then they just came out with kind of new legislation, Prop E, which was, I want to say last year. And that basically ties the amount of office to the amount of affordable housing being developed. And since it's so hard to develop affordable housing there, basically that effectively decreases the office supply pipeline by another 50%. So it's going to become even more supply constricted. I don't see them changing either of those anytime soon. If anything, I see them tying it to more affordable housing. The city really doesn't like the tech companies and really tries to squeeze them. So I don't see that changing anytime soon. And I'm, I'm sure the restrictive quality of the supply will stay. Yep. I don't know if you know the answer to this question, but let's just say, let's just say, taking a, a random number, a city allows 2 million square feet of office development a year. If me and you and a few other developers all come to the table with a 2 million square foot project tomorrow, do they just kind of get us in line? Meaning like, hey, you're going to go next year and sorry, buddy, but you're you're the one that's going four years from now. Like, how do they understand who gets to go in what year? That. I don't, I've actually never developed it. So I'm not part of that process normally. Usually if we're doing anything, it's under a small cap allocation, um, which is under 50,000 square feet. So you kind of skirt under one of the major requirements. But yes, that's my understanding is they literally put you in a line and it's just whoever gets the project gets the project. And if not, it's literally tough luck. Are you starting to see a ton of sublease space, uh, a lot of vacancy, or is is there leasing activity? Like, what are the kind of the fundamentals of the market like right now? Is everybody on the sidelines still? Yeah, it's it's almost complete. It was twenty twenty was almost completely dead. There was a massive amount of sublease activity, and that's really what hits first because obviously, you know, sublease vacancies are in our activity. It takes a while for general vacancy to hit, just because the leases have longer terms. Right? They give a five year lease, you can't really be vacant yet unless they completely default on the lease, but they can give up sublease space, which they do. So that's really the main thing you'll see quickly. And the sublease vacancy amount, it's skyrocketed. I, I almost stopped tracking it because it, was, it became kind of useless uh, to even look at, but it, it's it's really skyrocketed. I want to say it's like almost quadrupled since the beginning of 2020. Mm-hmm. So that's become massive. In terms of transactions overall, pretty much nothing transacted that wasn't under contract before COVID started. Mm-hmm. So there's really no price discovery in the market right now at all. And I mean, we have a few buildings that we could sell, but we just effectively can't because there's no price discovery and you just can't sell it right now. And I think personally, the major factor is just no one knows when people can fully go back to work without a mask and just kind of everything. Um, and I don't think the market's going to open up until people know that. Right? I think it's like I was saying, I think just there's there's too much of a gap in terms of the risk reward, and it just doesn't make sense for anyone to take a bet until they know. Are they allowing people in the office right now, or is it under restricted conditions, or just no altogether? People are going in, and it, it just depends on the uh, essentialness of the business, too. Um, there's like a ton of laws, and they, they roll it back and forth just like crazy, too. But yeah, pe- people are going in, and you can kind of skirt around some of these uh, central business things. But overall, a lot of people just aren't back yet in the city. Yep. My final San Francisco question, and since you're not in tech, you just described San Francisco. You said you don't really like it. Why are you still there? And will you be there for the long term? Like, well, what's keeping you there? Yeah, I mean, so I've actually, since 
since COVID started, I've just been moving around, um, just been Airbnb. So oh, cool. I, I haven't been there in in a while. I haven't been there since in almost a year. Holy actually. shit! Yeah. So I've just been kind of moving around. The short answer is I wouldn't stay there long term, and I would really, really think about going back even now. Um, I just consider it, it. It's one of just the worst deals for your money, I think, in the U.S. in terms of cities. It it really it, it's like I was saying. It really only makes sense if you're making a ton of money in tech, or even in real estate from the people who are working in tech. That makes sense too. But that's that's really the only people it ever made sense for. So yeah, I, I wouldn't. The answer is yeah, I would not want to go back. <laughs> okay. All right. Moving back into uh, just kind of office. You had tweeted out. I don't know, it was a month ago, maybe a, a deal that y'all had just put under contract. I think it was like a $50 million deal or something. Can you walk me through just a little bit of, you know, why that deal, what was special about it, especially, you know, in an environment where it's hard to peg where office is going? Like, j- let's just walk through how y'all got comfortable with that one. Yeah, I'm going to have to be pretty vague on this because the reason I deleted the tweet is I, I think my <laughs> audience is getting too big and someone might find out the actual deal. Okay. Uh, just because, especially right now, the uh, there just aren't that many transactions, like I was saying. Yeah. But overall, what got us comfortable is there's a significant tenant base. It's already over fifty percent leased right now, and those are semi long term leases, and they're they're not going anywhere. The tenants have been in the building forever. They have really healthy balance sheets, so that's really what got us comfortable with it. And then the rest of it is we're underwriting to market rents that are a significant discount from pre-COVID. So there's actually a lot of a fair amount of upside if rents do come back quicker. And I do think to a certain degree that the composition of the market has changed overall in terms of who owns properties and what kind of loss they're willing to take on the property. So I guess like pre-recession, you had a lot of non-institutional owners in the market and they're willing to take a loss just because they want to get someone in the space. Yep. Right. Like if you own the building forever, they just want to get some of the space. Maybe they have a really low basis too. They've owned it forever. Um, and it just doesn't even matter really. I mean, they're just making money regardless of what the, the yeah. rent amount is just yeah. because their basis is so low. <laughs> um, but now you have so many institutional funds in the market and they know if they lower the rent, even 10%, their promote is just killed. So almost every single time it's worth it for them to wait it out, but get, keep the face rent or even give a ton of concessions to keep the face rent, whatever it is. So I, I do think, I think it's going to be tough to see the massive rent decreases that everyone's expecting just because the market has changed a lot from past recessions. And on that deal that, that y'all did, and, and I don't want to get, again, want to respect the privacy of it, but can you just describe the situation that maybe the seller was in? Were they in distress? Like, why are they letting go of this asset at such a good price? Because one of the things I've just noticed, sure. no matter what you're in, is you still have not seen a lot of distress come to the market. And maybe that's because I'm insulated in Texas, but it just seems like everything gets, gets keeps getting kicked down the, the road. No, I agree. We, we haven't seen tons of distress either. And the distress we have seen, it's, it, it's almost like, I wouldn't even call it distress. It's like you're picking it up for a deal, but you don't feel like it's a great deal. But the, the deal we're doing, it's kind of a seller strategically exiting an asset class. Yep. And that, that was how we picked it up. Got it. Well, let's just talk about like, we can make up a deal or maybe a deal you've done in the past. I would just like to walk through the methodology of how y'all underwrite an office deal 
and why it's been chosen as an asset class and what are the the upsides to it and what are the things that make it really tough. Um, so like what would be like a fastball deal maybe outside inside of San Francisco or outside of San Francisco? What what things just get you uh, really going? Sure. I guess a typical deal, we're coming into it at, let's say you're entering at a four and a half cap or so, entry cap rate, and sometimes even lower if it's there's a lot of vacancy. Mm-hmm. Um, you're typically stabilizing at, let's say, around a, a seven or so. Six and a half is probably the, the lowest you'll go. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully you get to seven and a half, but usually around around a seven is where you stabilize. And then you're looking to sell at a, a five and a half or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically what you're doing in order to get to a seven uh, is just, it's just value add. So usually you're looking for kind of spaces that haven't been or been neglected by past owners. Maybe it's a, a, a typical play in San Francisco that existed pre-COVID at least was bigger space typically got a premium just because companies wanted more space. Right. So, I mean, you'd go into a building, just kind of blow out a ton of smaller suites, and then you'd get a 15% rental premium. Wow. So something like that is an example of, of kind of how you could swing it. And really, you're, you're probably looking at a 25% return on cost or so on a lot of these tenant improvements, where you go in, you're spending around 100 bucks a foot, and you're boosting rent, let's say, 20, 25 bucks a foot. And those are in the common areas, $100 a foot? No, that's just 10 improvements. We're not really, we rarely renovate common areas that much. Okay, well, let's just talk about tenant improvements because I think that's where a lot of people in office can get crushed is they underwrite, you know, 30 or $40 in TI. And now that offices are becoming more of a culture center and the bells and whistles and all the cool build outs are starting to happen that uh, the TI requirements from tenants are growing. Like, how do y'all think about mitigating that risk of TI exposure? Yeah, so that's that's one that I think it's really difficult when you're first starting out. But once you do a ton of tenant improvements, you can kind of underwrite it pretty pretty tight, especially when you work with the same contractors. So it's not like you're doing the same exact build out for every single tenant, but you can kind of standardize the finishes, and prices will rise uh, every once in a while on certain materials. But you can get a pretty good idea, and usually I'd say we're within, I don't know. 10, 20 bucks a foot of our underwriting, which is, that's pretty good, I think, for tenant improvement. So yeah, I really think it's more about just getting comfortable with the contractors, getting comfortable with the actual plan you're putting forth and almost standardizing a lot of the finishes. And that that really helps to underwrite it effectively. Are the capital markets in office starting to open up? Or are they still kind of everybody's in price discovery mode? Yeah, I guess on the equity side, people are looking for a ton of deals. The debt side is a bit different. And we're seeing just lower leverage overall. So whereas you pre- previously are looking at probably, well, you're looking at 70% before, but now you're probably looking at 60% max leverage, maybe 65 tops. Uh, I, I think it'd be tough to get a bank to go that far right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think it has changed. In terms of interest rates, they're a little higher, but they're not. it's not as drastic as the LTB change. Is there any interesting technology or software that is starting to go into office buildings or office properties that are, I don't know if it's from an operational standpoint or COVID technology or just anything interesting that you've seen kind of emerge over the last couple of years that um, kind of piques your interest? Honestly, not not really. Um, I think a lot of that is more in the really high-end class A buildings yep. rather than creative buildings. 
and I just don't really work with that. I'm, I'm sure there is, but it's just not really something I work with a lot. Can you define creative building just from your standpoint? Yeah, it's it's exposed ceilings. Let's say exposed brick on the side if it's there too. Kind of more of like almost an industrial type feel yeah. rather than a, a really, really professional type feel. Yeah, but I think that's the easiest way to describe it. And is most of that the buildings already come in with that bones or are you all going in and redeveloping it to to give it that look? Yeah, you're, it's, it's kind of funny because a lot of the time you'll you'll take like an old law office, let's say, which is actually built out. I mean, it's pretty nice. It's dated, but it, it's pretty nice. And you're basically just ripping everything out. Or you're just going down to the to the walls. And that's the aesthetic everyone loves. I, I like it as well. But uh, it's pretty funny that you're kind of destroying almost everyone's work before you to just get down to like the base building. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we buy industrial that has a lot of that kind of older exposed stuff. And I always walk into it and I'm like, people in office would pay a lot for this look. And (laughs) uh, the irony of that's funny. All right. You also do multi on the side and you've just kind of been vocal about it's an easier, less risky asset class. Can you just riff for a couple minutes on why you personally do multi and and kind of what makes it uh, appealing to you? Sure. I mean, I, I think multi is the safest asset class. And I also think it's the easiest to, uh, I may not be the easiest to manage just because uh, I think a single tenant triple net deal is the easiest to manage, but it's the easiest to learn, I think. There's really not that many moving parts. And a lot of it's common sense. There is some headache in you're dealing with tenants who are, I mean, it's not professional tenants, not like an office building or industrial building where you're dealing with kind of like professional tenants who you can kind of go back and forth with. A lot of time you're dealing with tenants who are, I mean, a lot of the time they're mad, to be honest. I mean, you're dealing with tenants who this is their biggest cost, right? It's housing. So you have to deal with that. And I'd say that that's kind of one of the biggest downsides. But overall, I think it's the easiest one to learn. It's very hard to screw up. Uh, I don't care what anyone says. If you buy a cash-flowing multifamily building, you have to really, really try and screw it up. Yep. Are you buying all over the country, or is that in San Francisco as well? No, not San Francisco, but I actually own mostly in the Northeast. And do you just hire third-party managers? So I'm creative with that. It is third-party, but it's not really a full management team. Basically, what I'll do is I'll have someone who's in the building just be a, a super. Yeah. And it's kind of a living super. So they pay, say, reduced rent. And they're just eyes and ears. I have, it's not like I'm collecting checks, right? Everything's through Zelle or it's online. And then aside from collecting the checks, you really only need a handyman who's kind of like on call. Yep. So I, I don't think it's that difficult. I think a lot of people blow it out of proportion. And they act like they're going to be the guy who's like running in the middle of the night, like fixing the sink, which I just don't do. Um, I'm happy to pay a plumber a little more and just not have to do that. And I think that's even beneficial to the LPs too, because I'm focused on more important things than fixing a sink. So I think a lot of that's blown out of proportion where people are like, oh God, like I got woken up in the middle of the night. It's like, yeah, but like if you put a couple layers in between you and the property, it's really not that bad. Yep. All right. You did an online course called The System that's, that's awesome. I've had a time to go through most of it and it's it's really cool. Let's just start out with how did this idea come about and kind of how did you put it all together and how long did it take and how'd you know what to put in it, all that stuff? Sure. Well, it, it took it took forever. I mean, it took me, I think, a year or so to put it all together. I guess the, the genesis of it was really, so my mentor, he runs kind of his own firm and he structures deals pretty differently from the way we do. 
And the way he structures it is, and this is a little technical, I guess, but kind of to get to it is he structures it over an equity multiple hurdle um, rather than IRR hurdle. Mm-hmm. And most private equity firms are forced to use an IRR hurdle um, for their promotes. And that's just because it's more beneficial to the LPs, I guess is the easiest way of putting it. Most LPs wouldn't like use an equity multiple hurdle because it's just more beneficial to the GP. And the GP is just the, the private equity firm. The LP is just the investor. Right. So I kind of watched him do his deals, and he operates on a permanent hold structure as well, rather than what most private equity firms do, which is fix and flip and they just sell. So it's, it, instead of just cycling through deals left and right, uh, he's holding these deals, I mean, not forever, but a long time. And I think there are a lot of, basically what I did is I, I kind of went through the both strategies and I was just like, it, it makes so much more sense to do a permanent hold than it does to keep fixing and flipping. I mean, for starters, if you fix and flip, I mean, you're essentially just selling your best deals every year. Yeah. Right? Instead of keeping them and just milking it forever, as soon as you have a good deal, you just get rid of it. So you're only as good as your last deal, which look like you'll make a lot of money in, in the short term. Long term, I mean, you have to every single year, you have to find a great deal yeah. or great three deals or great five deals, however big your firm is. Whereas if you're running a smaller shop on a permanent hold structure, you do five great deals in your life. I mean, you're done. You do 10 great deals, you're worth 50 to 100 million. Right? Yeah. So it's, it's just such a better structure. It's such a more patient and calculating structure. And there's just such a great potential for wealth, even if you're operating at a semi-smaller scale. How do you structure something differently over an equity multiple than you would? Like, let's just say, what what are the, what are the two structures look like if it's an IRR hurdle versus a uh, versus a uh, multiple hurdle, and why is multiple better? Sure. So, an IRR hurdle it's just over a specific IRR, which let's say typically it's eight percent is the typical hurdle rate. So until you hit an eight percent IRR, you don't take any money from your investors yet. And then once that's hit, it's, there's a certain split over it. So you usually, typically it's 20%. So after that point, you would take 20% of the profit over an eight. That's kind of how most hedge funds operate, how most private equity firms operate. And it, it's, look, it's a really good model, right? You, private equity firms and hedge funds make a ton of money, but it, it can be refined. And the reason why an equity multiple hurdle is better is because in an equity multiple hurdle model, once you hit the equity multiple hurdle, it's nearly impossible to go back under that hurdle. So you effectively own that percentage of the asset outright um, after that. So say it's 20%, you effectively own 20% of the asset outright. So let's say it's a 1.5x. Once you give your investors a 1.5x on their capital, you would essentially own 20% of the asset in perpetuity. Whereas with an IRR hurdle, um, it just doesn't really make sense for a long-term hold because so much of it is based on the residual value and what you sell it for. So if you're holding it for 20 years, I mean, the the sale in 20 years has to be discounted back so far just because it's so far in the future that your IRR would be so low that you, you wouldn't even get a promote. On the multiple hurdle, does it matter how long you have to give them that multiple back? Or like it could take two years, five years, 10 years? Like how do you yeah, think? That, that's the other thing. There's there's no cap to it. So I mean, say say you hold it for 20 years and hit the 1.5x on the 20th year, I mean, you'd still get it. Whereas an IRR hurdle, if you perform that poorly, you would never even get a, you wouldn't even get a promote, you'd be out. On an IRR model where it's like, you know, it's an eight pref, 
And let's just say you, you do a really good job and you return, you know, all the eight plus the original capital and you achieve that 20 IRR and then you continue to hold. Don't you also own 20 per, and it's an 80-20 split. You, you effectively own 20% of the deal. Are you just saying in an IRR model, if it, the longer it takes you to clear that hurdle, the farther you're kicking down the, the, the can down the road? Yeah, yeah, I, I see your point. I mean, it, it, it's also just way harder, I think, to keep above that pref, even after you return all the money. I mean, if you're at, if you're at a twenty percent consistently, that's that's pretty difficult, I think. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree with the premise. Yeah, I think that's right. In that course, you talk about how to turn fifty thousand into a million. Can can we just summarize kind of your view on how somebody doing a great job as kind of a their own PE firm, how you think about turning fifty thousand into a million? Sure. Um, so basically what it entails, and you almost don't need to know anything about real estate to do something like this. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's, it's, it's certainly, but the concept is simple, right? So it's, it's basically you're just performing expected value plays on real estate. And it's easiest to do this. I actually discussed this in uh, the Life Worth Chasing podcast as well. But it's easiest to do this with something where you there's a certain outcome, right? So it's hard to do in, in residential because there, I mean, say there's a multifamily building with five leases. No one lease really drives that much value enough to really turn it and give you that big uh, increase you need to get to a million dollars from 50k. Yeah. Um, but if you do something like a, say, a triple net deal for industrial retail or office where it's just a single tenant, I mean, that is the entire leverage then. So a, an example would be. Say there's a a vacant office building, right? And an office building while vacant goes for an implied 10% cap rate. But an office building, that same building leased up, and it goes for 7% cap rate uh, just because there's a premium for having an actual cash flow. Right. Um, and obviously, it's the 10% is an applied cap rate because there's zero income. So basically, what you could do, right, is go to the the seller. And be like, look, I'll take it down for an eight and a half percent cap rate. So the seller, from his perspective, he's getting 150 basis points of compression off what it's worth right now, right? Because right now it's vacant. And you theoretically are getting 150 basis points of compression as well because it's worth a seven percent cap rate. Right. So what you do is you get them get it under contract as an option to buy, right? Uh, and you could do this by either putting money down or no money down at all. And with it, say you put down 50k, right? And then say it's a hard deposit. So that's, that's your 50K there. And that's an option to buy. And basically what you do now is you go to a leasing broker. Leasing brokers only get paid when you lease up a property. You go to the leasing broker and you just say, look, can you lease up this property from there? And if they lease it up, then you make your money. You make your 150 basis points on the sale, right? Because you're going from you're buying an 8.5 and, and selling for 7 immediately. Or if he doesn't lease it up, you just walk away from the deal. And in that case, you lose your 50K. I think you could do it without putting the 50K down at all and just putting it under contract with a soft deposit. And from there, you just need to work out the actual numbers, the 150 basis points of compression to get you a million dollars. But that, that's an easy way of doing it. I have a, several other examples in my course. But conceptually, it's that's really all you need to do. And you could do it with no risk. Right? You could do it with no money down or a soft deposit or whatever you want to call it. You could have the leasing broker work for you. right? I mean, he's not getting paid until anything's leased up anyway. That's how it works. But I think that's a really, it's a simple way of doing it. I don't think it's 
easy, um, but it's definitely possible to pull off. So yeah, I think it's an easy way of, uh, not an easy, a simple way of going from 50K to a million. And in a situation like that, I know it's just a hypothetical, but are you trying to tie that up for like a 90-day option period and giving the leasing broker plenty of times to lease or that could be done in kind of a shorter window or like how do you think about it from a time perspective to close? Yeah, I mean, from a time perspective, you as the buyer want as much time as possible, right? Right. There's, there's no downside to more time. So I think you just, as, as much as you get 365 days, you do that. Why not? And you negotiate with the seller that one, you're allowed to kind of lease the property during that period and they have to be able to accept kind of any lease that the the leasing broker brings in? Yeah, yeah, you negotiate that. Um, and you'd obviously need a lawyer to get the exact language there, but th- that's what you negotiate for. Um, I think it's a huge opportunity with retail. There's just so much vacant retail right now. And I think you go to some of these sellers and even offer something a, a good price, they're, they jump it in. Um, and you could just go in with just no money down and see what happens. Yep. No, I, I agree. The The longer the period and um, yeah, the the amount of deals that we've bought, not intending to like lease them during or while we're trying to buy it, but especially in industrial right now, there's been several deals where we're leased up almost by the time we close. And yeah, it's a beautiful thing. The The thing we're really trying to figure out is how do we get a line of credit that allows us to basically effectively go in and and buy the deal as if it's just us, Fort Capital, the GP. And if we get at least during our, our period, we can effectively own our whole deal. If we don't, and then we just go back to plan A, which is raise investor capital and, and go through the whole motion of creating the value post-close. But that's like our number one priority as a GP right now is to get that line of credit to do exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I feel like, I mean, I know I, we don't use lines of credit, but I know so many people do. I feel like that's that's definitely possible to pull off. Not not really that unreasonable of a uh, request from the bank or that fund. It's not. And it's like, we'll put down 10%. Maybe they forward 90 of it. We try and get as long of a contract. And even if we don't lease it by closing, we can still close and basically say like, hey, we're going to give ourselves six months. If we can't lease it in six months, then we'll just take it out as a normal deal and run a typical value add. But there's been like three or four deals we've closed lately where we're pretty much leased up by the time we call investor capital and go do the deal. And it's not, we're, we're thrilled that investors make a huge pop. But on on some of it, it's like, well, is this some risk that we're willing to take to see if we could possibly own more of the deal before we take it out to investors? And I mean, if you walk into our finance team, it's like the number one thing on the board right now is get a line of credit, which is really hard to get if you're not a big fund and you have all your assets and different entities, which we do. Yeah, I wonder if, I mean, if you could just figure out a way to have firm LP commitment for the deal anyway. I know that'd be asking a lot of your LPs because they're essentially admitting that they're kind of second second fiddle there. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if you just have the LP just be like, we're for sure going to buy the deal if they don't. I mean, then I'd assume the bank would go through with it. Yep. Just jumping back for a little bit, just on you, you, you spent a year developing this system. Did you kind of have the like table of contents and what you wanted to get, or throughout the year you kind of kept adding to it? I mean, it's so well done and you thought through everything. I'm just kind of trying to get more between how a real estate guy goes from being a real estate guy to creating this awesome uh, online course. Yeah, it's I, I have the whole this happens with everything I write. I, I have an email list too where I have the entire idea in my head. It just takes me like three days to write one section. 
Mm-hmm. It just takes so long for me to put it on paper. Um, just because my, my thoughts are always just running in so many different directions at once. And I really need to have it just on paper and just kind of, I, I probably reformatted everything maybe like 10,000 times. So it, it just takes me so long to do something like that, which, which is really the bulk of it. But I, I knew what I was going to put in there probably within the first 30 minutes of creating it. It just took forever for me to actually put it in. And was the thesis basically everything you wish you knew before you got started? Yeah, I, it, it was that. And it's also, I, I try and make it as practical as possible while also I almost keep some information out of there because I think people don't need to know it yet. And I don't want them to clutter their brains. Yep. Um, it's like a lot of information you'll see. And I actually haven't even read that many courses online, but even when I, I look at anything that's kind of produced in real estate online or like any model or anything, it's just people just put in so much stuff that just doesn't matter yet. And I, I think that's one of the biggest things that stop people from investing is they're thinking eight steps ahead when it just, that's just never what you should do. Uh, you just need to cross that problem when it comes to it. And that doesn't mean you run in blindly, but it does mean that there's a problem that's four steps ahead of your current problem. That's not something you should be worrying about yet. Yep. So that, that was kind of my other goal with it was to make it directly actionable where people can dive in day one and not be thinking of like eight steps in the future where if they fail on step 12. I love it. I know it's a relatively new course, but is there any cool stories or any kind of outcomes that any of the people that have bought it that just kind of come to mind? Um, I mean, there, there's been a ton. Um, I know people have, I'm trying to think if I have anyone who's completely confirmed, gone through an entire deal that I know I'm almost positive there have been. I know tons of people tell me they got the deal on contract. I just don't know if it went through. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'm sure six months from now, there's going to be a ton. And are most of the people like brand new to real estate? This is how they're figuring it out? Or are a lot of the people buying it been in the game for a while? Um, and they're just looking to get more educated? I think it's it's a mix. And that was actually one of the hardest things about creating the course is there are people who are buying it who are I mean, they own a ton of real estate, right? They're fund managers who are buying it. And they're people who have, they've never bought a deal in their life. So that was one of the hardest things was bridging that gap and making it applicable for both parties, which I think, I think it, the course does accomplish that. But it was, it was really difficult to, to do that and make sure that everyone was able to find value and make it applicable for everyone. Yep. Last question on the course, is there, is there a grander vision for this or, hey, I built a course, this is it, or is there, are you trying to do more with this or, or you don't know yet? No, there's definitely a grander vision. Um, I don't know if I'm fully ready to reveal what it is, but I, I want to basically get rid of the way education is taught right now. I think it's like a joke. <laughs> um, it's incredibly overpriced. It's a huge waste of everyone's time and almost none of it's applicable. Uh, I think the easiest example is college. I went to a good college. I don't think I learned a single thing there. I mean, all I did was all I did was create connections, which was great, and it's worth it just through the connection. But from a pure learning standpoint, it's a hundred percent a waste of time. And I, I think it's I think it's really I'm lucky too in that it, I didn't have to take out big loans or anything, so I I never had to deal with anything like that. But tons of people do, and I think it's ridiculous that eighteen year old the only path we teach them is like, hey, here's like two hundred fifty k in debt, like good luck. Yep. Um, Zero applicable skills, like just like, you know, it's, I think it's insane. So I really want to transform that. And I think it's possible to do with, I think you can undercut the cost by literally a, a factor of 100 and easily provide a better product than the current college. So yes, there is a grander vision, but 
not fully ready to reveal it yet. A hundred percent. I mean, even just getting onto YouTube and being able to know right keywords and search, I mean, that in and of itself, you can get a, probably a better education spending a couple of years searching around YouTube than you could in a four-year four college education. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the average person, if they really studied the subject in depth and just became good at one thing and then popped up a Twitter page and sold that service, they'd make more money doing that than they would in their career. Yep. I agree. I think colleges have a really big headwind in front of them. It's really hard to continue justifying 50 or 60 grand a year, except for the fact that you can provide a social playground for young teenagers to go be, you know, have a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I actually, I was talking to a, a few neighbors who are going back to college right now, and no, no one wants to go back because they took away the social aspect because of obviously the distancing and everything. Yeah. So, I mean, you can't, you can't do anything there, and now they just hate it. Yeah. Which is kind of funny because I know when I talk to uh, you talk to people in Europe who go to college and they all hate it because all it is is just it's just boring class. Like there's no social aspect there. Everyone lives far away from the college. It's just really just just class. And they all hate it there. So yeah. they all loved like American college because they thought it was great. And now U.S. college is becoming the same thing just by virtue of COVID, which I think exposes the entire system for what it is. It's just it's a it's a party and a playground, which is great for connections. But when that dries up, I mean, there's nothing left. Yep. And most people don't realize they're taking on hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt to basically go party for four years. I, I don't even think people know they have the option not to do it. Yep. Well, the institutions are built to convince you at a young age that, I mean, you start hearing about it in middle school. It's like, you got to go to college. You got to go to college. It's It's almost, it's such part of the American culture. But yeah, I agree. I think COVID's totally turning that on its on its head. All right, a couple more questions, and then we'll get into just a couple that came off of Twitter that are interesting. But I'm, I'm really fascinated by this mentor, just the way that you've kind of typed out your course. You really just kind of continue chatting, and, and we don't have to get into him personally, or but just how did you find this mentor? And just for anybody listening you know, how they could strike a relationship with somebody that could change your life, which it sounds like kind of that mentor did for you. Um, just kind of like what are best practices in finding a, a mentor? And and can you give any more insight to what was so special that this uh, mentor's done for you along the way? Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of things there. The, I think the biggest thing he's done, and I, I always say this about almost anything, is when people show you what's possible, I think that's almost the biggest thing. Not even... I think the, the structures he's given me, the real estate knowledge has been incredible. But when someone shows you what, what's possible, I think that's the biggest thing. And to a certain degree, I had that growing up as well. But you see it with everything, right? Like once someone shows you, hey, like you can build X portfolio by doing this. And it, even if you undershoot it by 10X, you're still in a great spot. It's pretty compelling. And I, I think it, it really motivates you and shows you what you personally can accomplish as well. In terms of just finding a mentor, I think... I think people approach it from the wrong angle. I think people approach it from the angle of what can I extract from this guy? Where it should be, what value can I give him or her? Um, might happen to be him. So I really think if you go in with what gap can I fill that he or she doesn't have? And a lot of times that's just doing something that they hate. Right? So an example would be administrative work. Right? Almost everyone hates that. I mean, just off, just doing that. And it can't just be you saying, hey, I'll do your admin work, right? Because that's not really compelling, right? I can get an assistant to do that. Really, what you have to do is show them you're extremely motivated, that you are really interested. People love curiosity, 
right? Like people love being, unless they're like a, a kind of boring and like sour person, people like being peppered by questions for people who are younger than them, right? It's like, it's kind of endearing. Yep. Um, so anything like that, where you're asking smart questions, there is a such thing as a stupid question. You can't be asking stupid questions. <laughs> but when you're asking smart questions and, and you're really just like kind of showing that you really love it and you're really motivated, it's very difficult for people to say no. I think those are kind of the two biggest things is showing you're really, really motivated and then uh, making sure to provide value yourself. And I would say the last thing is just becoming a mirror image of what they were or what they thought they were 20 years ago or how many years ago it was. I think that's the other thing. People help people who are like them. And that people even get into the whole thing of it shouldn't be that way and whatever it is, but that, that is the way it is. And like I'm, I'm more likely to get help from someone who is exactly like me. That's just how the world works. So kind of finding someone who matches up like that, or if they don't match up, making it seem like it matches up. I think those are, those are kind of the things people should be focusing on. And I, I think most people approach it from a, Hey, this guy's rich. Like, let me see if I can take some money from him. Yep. Like, that's, that's really not going to work. Did you know this guy or like seek him out or he was somebody that you kind of already, I don't know if the words idolized or is this just like a random guy that kind of just came across, you know, your path at some point and he became the guy like, how'd you, how, how did he become the guy? Yeah. I mean, he was, I met him uh, during my summer internship or, or right before my summer internship at my current firm. So I just, I just kind of like peppered him with questions all the time and then just stayed in touch. I actually spoke to him this morning. <laughs> but yeah, it just, I just peppered him the questions, offered to help. I showed him deals. I mean, there was a point where I was, I was in college. I was like, I was doing zero work for class. Um, just trying to source deals for him. I actually almost sourced him a $5 million deal that he went through with, but we lost in the, the final bidding process. It was student housing actually, which I'm not sure if it would have turned out good or bad, but stuff like that, right? Like, was it a good decision for me not to pay attention at all in class and source deals for him? Like probably, but I, I don't know if I'd advise other people to do that as well. No, I love it. All right. Just a couple of questions from Twitter and then we'll, we'll bring it home. Mitchell Baldridge said, ask him about mindset and follow up on Cali crates. Yeah. So in terms of, uh, Cali, I, I have another Twitter account. I don't know if you know, that's, pretty much focused on mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's focused on a, a few other things as well. I think it's important to always kind of have your pulse on the market. And my real estate account is very focused on real estate. I don't I don't like having it focused on anything else. Like I don't discuss politics. I don't, I don't discuss anything else at all because I just want it to be purely real estate focused. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm fine with that on one account, but I also have obviously other opinions and insight I think I can share on other topics as well. So that, that's one reason. The other reason is just keeping a finger on the pulse. I mean, real estate's great. There's also a massive, I'm sure you know this, investing in industrial, a massive e-commerce market. Yep. Um, and like I said before, I think it's stupid not to have an internet presence these days. And on that other account, I pretty much follow a ton of young guys who are crushing in e-commerce. I think those are really good connections to have. They're great people to know. Um, and it's just great to know what's going on in that sector as well. Yep. Because there's, I think there's a lot that's going to go on in that sector in the future. And I I think it's very smart to just kind of, like I said, just keep your finger on the pulse and just make sure you know what's going on. Is that the other account, Cali Crates? Yep. Oh, okay. I'll have to go follow it. 
do the people that you work with know that you're not like know who you are on online or is it or is literally you keep this a thousand percent secret uh it's complete no one knows that's i mean not, not even my family knows <laughs> that's that's cool i've i have no anonymous accounts but i've i've often thought about at least creating one yeah i was i was always curious if at least everybody at your firm knew that you were the real estate god on twitter no 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 enough <laughs> Okay, so I can ask this question since nobody knows, but if you, is there something that, um, is there something that's keeping you from going out and starting your own firm? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I mean, it's, I think people underestimate how difficult it is to fully branch out initially. And you did it, so I don't don't think you're underestimating it. But if you actually run the numbers, it's incredibly difficult to just do. So, and that's one of the reasons I actually created the Twitter account as well. I mean, to a certain degree, I think if you're smart, you can almost have the Twitter account basically fund the shortfall until the profits really start coming in from the real estate portfolio. Yep. And real estate, it's not as almost everyone's listening knows. It's not like stocks, right? It's not like you pick a winner and the next day it goes up 100%. Right. Like you pick a winner and you don't get your money until five years from now. So that's, that's what I'm talking about with the difficult part for the numbers to work. It's really that five-year gap between when you start and when the profits roll on. Yep. So that's that's the most difficult thing to bridge, and that, as of this present moment, is the reason why I haven't started my own firm yet. You nailed it. I, I mean, obviously, I have gone out and done uh, built it, but it is it has been. I mean, it's been sixteen years, and I still feel like we're still figuring some stuff out. Um, it's extremely hard, and going from a guy that's just doing deals to actually building a company that does deals is almost two totally different things. That's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about it from that perspective, but it's you're almost focusing half your time probably on the business aspect as well. Oh, I think people, it's kind of interesting. I mean, just the Twitter world and it has brought so much value to me. I mean, that's why we're talking right now. The last two or three years, I don't underwrite deals anymore. I don't asset manage them. I don't get our financing anymore. Like 90% of my day is thinking about the team and building a company and the transition from a guy that used to underwrite deals and 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 manage them and execute on them. Like you, you don't really know when that that kind of, shift is occurring. And then I looked up, you know, a couple of years ago and I was like, I could be in any industry right now. I mean, obviously I'm in real estate, but that whole going from the deal guy with three or four, you know, teammates to a team of 25 people where other people are doing the deals and managing them has been one of the most challenging and most rewarding things that I've ever done. But it is an enormous shift. And I think it's different in real estate or kind of deal oriented businesses because it's not this you don't really realize it's happening. It's like if you're selling t-shirts online, like you kind of know that you're just going to scale and a lot of people are going to have to, you know, show up to sell millions of t-shirts a year. But you don't really realize in real estate as much like how to build the platform to where, you know, you go from being a guy that does one or two deals a year to we'll do, you know, 12 or 14 deals a year and this year, and I won't find any of them. I won't underwrite any of them. And that was just a really tough shift for me. And I think, um, you know, I think it's it's really challenging. I don't think it's just real estate, but it, it was it was very eye opening, and I really didn't see it coming. Um, but it's just interesting. Which do you enjoy more, the underwriting or the running the company? Running the company. I mean, I I love sitting in investment committee. I love asking. Like, I'd say I love investment committee is probably my favorite part of. And I say investment committee. It's not like we're some you know 
big institution that has all these layers, but we have a, a deal team and we sit in there and we riff on deals and poke holes. And I enjoy being the guy that just, even if I know the deal's great, just being able to keep asking challenging questions to get the team to kind of level up and think of things through different lenses. Um, but I am terrible on Excel. I'm awful on Excel. I'm, I'm kind of a napkin modeler. I mean, that's probably every uh, rich real estate guy in the world is a better napkin modeler than Excel guy. If we met, ever met and you saw me on Excel, I think it would blow your mind. I am so bad. Um, I still copy and paste with my mouse. I use my mouse for everything. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's, that's brutal. <laughs> if I started buying rental houses my freshman year, like I never, I've never worked for anybody. And so I knew Excel to the extent that I had to build like a one page model to, you know, do a little townhome development. But as soon as I could hire someone to do it, I did. And I've really never looked back. I think that's even better. Right? I mean, I think it just, it just shows you're way better at analyzing deals. Most people are just good at working Excel. Well, and you know the drill, the longer you have to spend in Excel to get to a yes, it's probably telling you something just in, in, in general. I'm not saying Excel's pointless, but these long 15-page models that you see these huge shops make, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's 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 almost laughable. It's like all that, and it gets like a 14. It's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it's probably not even going to get a 14. <laughs> all right, man. This has been great. It's great to get to just hear your voice. I know we've been kind of buddies online for a couple of years, but um, yeah, everything you've you've put out and the way you're thinking about it is 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 awesome and on point. And um, if you ever come out of hiding, I would love to love to meet you one day in person. Maybe we could just meet and just never tell me who you are on the anonymous side. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, let, let's definitely do it. I may be in Texas sometime soon, actually. So let's see. Find a way to send a signal to say, hey, it's not me, but it's me. And uh, and, we'll, and we'll connect. All right, dude. I really, uh, really appreciate you spending time with me today. And uh, yeah, if you make it down to Texas and there's a way we can connect, I would I'd really, really enjoy it. Yeah, no, me, me too. I really appreciate this. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.